Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. I have been waiting a long time to say those words. And now that I've said them, you're going to be hearing them for a very long time. We will not be in the book of Romans for a few weeks or even months. But this letter is so encouraging and so central to your faith that the length of time will feel very short. And when we're done, you're going to cry for more. It, it is that grand of a, of a book. It will be hard to underestimate the significance of, of Romans or its reach. Um, some of the greatest figures of church history credit their salvation to to this book, we, we just got done looking at a number of them. All of the leaders of church history or people from it have been marked by the book of Romans. Augustine was shaped by its theology. Luther found peace with God through it, even though both of those men were a thousand years apart. John Calvin's very first published commentary was on the book of Romans because he believed it was so vital to the faith. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored 34 years uh, at uh, Westminster Chapel in London, produced his longest commentary on the book of Romans. Are you ready for this? Fourteen volumes in length on the book of Romans only. It's the longest of all of his expositions. And it wasn't just the Reformers that that have benefited from from this book. John Wesley, the most well-known Arminian in history... After returning from America on a a ship with the Moravians, um, received assurance from listening to uh, someone read Luther's preface to the book of of Romans. And speaking about that night in Aldersgate Chapel in 1738, Wesley made his famous statement. He felt his heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. I can remember uh, former President Bush, the junior, uh, making that same statement. At least that was one of Wesley's salvation experiences. But sadly, some people have read the book of Romans and, and they've gotten it very, very wrong. Uh, James Dunn, E.P. Saunders, N.T. Wright, you've probably heard, heard of him before those other, other two. They've all read and reinterpreted Romans through what they call a new perspective on Paul and And by new, they mean they're critical of Romans' emphasis on justification by faith uh, uh, alone. I think even worse than them, though, is is the heretic Pelagius, who who promoted absolute free will. Whenever he read Romans, he wrote a commentary on it, and he said he walked away reading Romans, seeing the power and the quality of human nature in the book. Now, I'm not exactly sure what he was reading, but it was not the book of Romans. Or where, if he was reading the book of Romans, that he got that. It it surely wasn't in chapter 1 or or 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or or anywhere else. Because Romans is all about God. It's all about the gospel uh, of God. I mean, there's a reason that you walk unsaved people down the Romans road, right? There's a reason that you go to the book of Romans in order to present the gospel, because there is no other book in the New Testament that presents the whole gospel in such a clear and concise fashion as the book of, uh, of Romans. I mean, in this letter, God takes you from sinner to saint, from condemnation to glorification, and, and 
away from looking to yourself and looking to Christ alone. And all of that is by grace alone in this book. And Romans even anticipates and answers the most common objections to the gospel of, of grace. Like, why does a person need to be saved to begin with? Or how can God justify sinners who are truly guilty and then remain just himself? I mean, how does he do that? Does salvation by grace alone mean that you can just sin and then you're secure after that? Or, or is there something else? I mean, what about the sin that I have after I come to Christ? Romans answers that question. and How does God deal with that? Uh, does he condemn me? Am I condemned at any point in time after coming to, to Christ? And your mind probably goes to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans answers, uh, answers questions like, where is Israel in, in God's plan? I mean, if salvation is of the Jews, where are they? Why are so few being saved e e even today? I mean, questions like if salvation is all of God, can he be blamed for, for those who are not saved? It anticipates the, 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 the objections to, to grace alone and, and answers, is, is God unjust by saving some and not all? Romans covers more theology than any other New Testament letter. Theology proper, that's about God. Anthropology, Christology, pneumatology, about the Spirit. Ecclesiology, eschatology. It speaks to the doctrines of total depravity, the, the atonement of Christ, Adam's fall, the Spirit's work, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, sanctification, glorification, election, God's glory, and God's covenants with Israel. All of that in one letter and more. Which is why it's placed at the head of the class in the New Testament seating chart. I, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Romans is the first epistle in your Bibles. And that's, that's not by mistake. The Bible is not put together chronologically. Um, it starts with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells the story of the coming, the crucifixion, and then the, the resurrected victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death. It presents Christ up front, that, because He's the, the foundation of, of everything, His foundation of the gospel, the cornerstone. And then after the gospels is the book of Acts, which, which tells the story about how Christ is building his church, fulfilling his promise of Matthew 16, that, where he said, I will build my church. So he's doing that through the apostles and the prophets. And then the first epistle that comes in your Bibles is the letter to Romans. Even though Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written first, written before Romans. That's no mistake because there's no other letter that lays out the, the heart of the New Testament more clearly. So it's placed at the entrance of the, the city gate. The late Alva J. McLean said, Romans stands there much like the brazen altar stood in the tabernacle. When the worshiper started to approach the holy place, he first came to the brazen altar on which the sacrifice was placed. He could not pass. He could not enter the, the tabernacle until he came to that. The book of Romans in the New Testament is the place where we find Christ set forth as, a, as the propitiation which justifies us and enables us through faith in His blood to go on in Christian truth. 
Romans tells us what Christianity is. And with that introduction, I, I can hardly wait. And so today, what we're going to do is introduce the book, and you're going to get an overview of its, of its contents. And I want to tell you ahead of time, I don't want to discourage you from taking notes, but you're not going to be able to take down everything that, that, I'm, that I'm saying. I'm going to have you turn places, but a number of places I've put the I place the, the scriptures on the, on the screen. And, and you get a copy. You'll get a copy of the PowerPoints and all of the, of the notes. You do that every single week uh, if you have, the, you have the church app. And so what I want you to do is actually take this in. We're going to do a flyover of, of the book. I want you to see it in the macro, in the, in the big picture, before we actually look at it verse by, by verse. And you understand this if you've, ever, if you've ever built a house. I mean, the first thing you do is go over the building plans before you before you start, or, or you might think of it like opening um, up your, your Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it is when you go on a trip. Uh, before you start driving turn by turn, it shows you a route overview. That's what I want to do uh, this morning. So before we start walking in the beautifully manicured gardens of God's righteousness and we'll, we'll examine all of the different theological plants and fruit trees there, I want you to see the garden as a whole so we don't miss anything, or so we don't get lost. And there are four preparatory questions to the, about Romans that we, we need to answer. And the first one is, who is this letter's writer and recipients? Because the background of the church is key to some of its, some of its context. The second question is, why was the letter written? Because the purpose of this letter is key to some of its interpretation. Number three, how is it structured? What's the skeletal system of, of Romans? Can you see it in your mind? Or do you just see bits and pieces of it? I want you to see the, you see the whole thing because the, those details help us see Paul's overarching theme and his argument, how he lays it out. And finally, what does God intend me to get from it, because God has a profound purpose for the book of Romans. If it's that important, given this much detail, this much prominence in the New Testament, we'll answer what, what you and I will gain from it if we go along for, for this journey. And the first question to understand about Romans is who's the writer and, and, and the recipients? And the, the, the answer to the first question, first part of that question is pretty easy. Uh, it's, it's the Apostle Paul. But the second, the recipients, is a little more difficult. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now we know unquestionably that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Not even skeptics argue that. He wrote it, though, using an amanuensis, which is a a fancy word for a scribe, and whose name is actually provided in the, in the letter. Look at Romans 16.22 here. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, now, wait a minute. Did Paul write this or did Tertius write this? And Paul dictated what he wanted to say, and Tertius wrote it down. And then Paul would have received that back, and he would have edited it to make sure that it was his exact words. And we know that, that that was Paul's method, this method of dictation, 
Because the style of Romans is very similar, almost identical to Galatians and 1 Corinthians. And Tertius was not the scribe for those letters. So it's obvious that Paul didn't give him leeway in editing. This is the Apostle Paul's writing. And Paul actually wrote 13 letters of the the New Testament. Now think about that. 13 letters were written by the Apostle Paul, assuming that you don't believe that he wrote Hebrews. 27 New Testament letters in all. And if you take out the five uh, Gospels and Acts, he wrote all but nine. Thirteen were written by Paul. And they're grouped in four categories. There's his early epistles, that's the first and second Thessalonians, his major epistles, some of those written early as well, Galatians, first and second Corinthians, and then Romans, his prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and then what we call the pastorals, which is 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. But Romans is unique. It's unique in many ways. It's the only letter that Paul wrote to a church for which he did not have pastoral responsibility. All the other churches that Paul writes to, he either planted them or he has some responsibility for them but not Romans. He didn't plant the church, and he doesn't have any direct responsibility for them or ongoing ministry to them. Romans is also unique because it's the longest of all of the letters that Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians is close behind. The timing of the book was toward the end of his third missionary journey, so it's toward the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, around 57, uh, 55 to 57 A.D. And we know this because Acts chapter 20 and Romans chapter 15 correlate. If you want to see information about when the epistles were written and how it all lays out, the book of Acts is your timeline. It's a chronology because it just walks historically through the missionary journeys of Paul. Look at Acts chapter 20. Paul says, and there he spent, or Luke says about Paul, there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. In verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, he's not going to stop at Ephesus, so that he might uh, not have spent time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul was hastening to Jerusalem, Luke tells us, to carry an offering there. And he's accompanied by representatives of these giving churches. And Luke tells us that Paul spent three months in this little hiatus there, right outside of Corinth, beginning this journey. And that matches exactly what you have in Romans 15. Romans 15 is chocked full of details about this letter, who it's written to and when and why and those kind of things. Paul describes here his current circumstances when he's writing this letter, Romans 15. 25, and now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Romans is written during these three months. and It's written right outside of Corinth. And we even know likely who carried the letter from Corinth to, to Rome. The greatest and longest of the Apostle Paul's letter was entrusted to a woman named Phoebe. Romans 16, 1. I commend you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church at Sincrea, which is the port city 
outside of, uh, of Corinth. Paul says she's to be greeted whenever she arrives with the, with the letter. So that's who wrote it, but, but who is Paul writing to? This is the one that's a little bit more, more difficult to figure out, or there's a lot of different ideas uh, about this. I'm not really sure why, but, but there are. And it might be a little bit more important than, than you realize. I mean, one of the questions you have to answer before you interpret this book was, who was Paul writing to? And that'll lead you to why Paul was writing. That means you're writing to Jewish Christians or Gentiles, or, or is this kind of Christians in general? Is this Paul's systematic theology to the Christian world? One, one person even says, like, this is Paul's last will and testament. He wants to write everything that he knows about Christianity down. That's, that's not correct. Look, for instance, uh, how people might be confused. Look, if you would, at verse 5 of chapter 1. Look what Paul says here in his introduction. Romans 1, 5. For though, or through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So if you read that verse in the introduction, and introductions are very important, it seems to indicate that, that Paul's writing only to Gentiles. I mean, he says he's an apostle of the, uh, of the Gentiles. And the readers are God's elect in that Roman city. They're, they're separated uh, out of all the other Romans. But then if you read Romans chapter 4, verse 1 where Paul's arguing about Abraham and Moses, he says, What then shall, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Or you read Romans 14, which talks about the Sabbath laws and new moons and those type of things, Jewish dietary laws. It seems like Paul's writing to a Jewish audience. But if you just let the book lead you, I think the answer is very clear. Paul is writing to Roman Christians in the capital city made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And it started, like all the other churches, with a Jewish focus. Now it's primarily Gentile, which is why Paul addresses the introduction to the Gentiles, but he addresses both in the, in the letter. And that's significant because it's, evidence, uh, because it's evident from the book that Paul did not plant the church. In fact, we do not know the name of the first believer that brought the gospel to, to Rome. And while we don't know who founded the church, we do know who didn't. It wasn't Paul, and it surely was not Peter. Look at Romans 15, 22-23. Remember chapter 15 gives you a lot of details about the book. Paul says, for this reason... I've often been prevented from coming to you, that's to Rome, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, meaning he's preached the gospel all over, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you. So Paul clearly says he's never been to Rome, and he wants to get to Rome. So it wasn't Paul that planted it, and it also wasn't Peter. Uh, the reason that's important is because the Roman Catholic Church claims Peter founded the church in Rome in order to uphold their, their false teaching of papal primacy. Peter was the first pope, according to Catholicism. And it's their tradition, and that's all it is, it's tradition. I mean, the Apostle Paul salutes 27 people by name in chapter 16. 
And there is no mention of Peter in chapter 16 at all, in all of those names. In fact, there's no mention of Peter in the entire book. Paul also claims in Romans 15, 20 that the aim of his ministry was to preach the gospel where it, it had never been preached, which included Rome. By, there was no apostolic foundation to the church of Rome. That's what Paul's saying here. And he says, Thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. Jesus sent out the apostles to lay the foundation with the sign gifts and other things. And Paul says, nobody did that in Rome. Paul says he'll not build on another apostle's foundation, and if the apostle Peter had planted the church, that wouldn't be true. Paul clearly would have gone in another direction. But not only that, I think something that's as telling as Paul not mentioning Peter in this letter, Luke, in the book of Acts, does not record Peter as the founder of the Roman church whenever he wrote Acts. And if Peter was such a prominent figure, as to the extent that Peter would receive the keys of Christ and be the first pope and lay the, the very cornerstone of the church, for Luke not to mention him in the book of Acts is just just unheard of. It's just it's not, not logical. No, rather than Romans establishing the papacy, the foundation, how the Roman church started, actually proves its theme. The theme is the power of the gospel, of God's righteousness. The, Romans, uh, the Roman church foundation proves that the gospel is so powerful that it doesn't need an apostle or a pope or, an, or any man to go wherever God deems it go. Actually, Acts chapter 2 shows us specifically how the gospel got to Rome. This is the list of individuals that were, that were there at the day of Pentecost listening to Peter preach. It says that there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Rome is specifically mentioned in the group of people that heard Peter preach on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And one of those visitors from Rome and Jerusalem heard Peter preach, was converted and took the gospel back to Rome. These men were obviously Jews or they... They wouldn't have been in Jerusalem. They wouldn't have been at the temple at, at Pentecost. And so they heard the message that Jesus was the, the Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And they took that back to their synagogue in Rome. And they reasoned with the scriptures uh, with, with others about the identity of Christ. And no doubt some in the synagogue believed. And no doubt, just like everywhere else, some rejected. And, and there, was a, there was a scuffle about that. And they were probably rejected. And they were cast out or thrust out of the synagogue and they started their own ecclesia, which is likely how the church started. But if Paul didn't plant the church, then why is he writing this letter? I mean, because the purpose of this letter is, is the key to some of its interpretation. What is the reason for, for Paul writing such a significant letter to a church that he didn't plant? And one to where he has no previous pastoral authority. And he's close to the end of his third missionary journey. And up to this point, 
all the letters that Paul writes, and the ones beyond this letter, all deal with issues to strengthen churches that, that know him. So why Rome? Um, well, there are several ideas. And the ones worth considering each prove a, a little different emphasis. Doug Moo said that the purpose of Paul in Romans cannot be confined to any one suggestion, but several purposes, like Paul's missionary situation, or past battles in Galatia or Corinth, or his coming crisis in Jerusalem, or, or a number of other things. But everyone, everyone that you'd want to listen to agrees that it's all about the gospel. A gospel hinged with justification by faith alone. Always remember the door to heaven swings on that doctrine. Jesus is the door, but the hinges of that door is justification by faith alone. But the purpose of this letter is quite clear. If you just focus on the exegesis of the letter itself, Paul tells us in this letter one specific reason that he writes it, and then the other can be seen from its context. First of all, he says he writes it to bring the gospel to Spain through describing the gospel that he preaches. That's why he's writing it, to describe the gospel that he preaches. And then secondly, to bring unity through explaining the gospel and dealing with objections to it. Look at, at Romans 15, 23. Here's the explicit reason stated within the book. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, on his way there, and to be helped on my way by, there by you, support, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints." Uh, Paul mentions three locations in the book of Romans. He mentions Jerusalem, where he's headed to deliver the, the offering to the, to the saints. He mentions Rome, which is obvious, the place that he's writing. And then he ultimately mentions Spain, where he hopes to preach the gospel. And Paul was all about, all about the gospel, meaning he wanted to see it spread. And, and in order for him to reach Spain, he, he had to go through Rome. He knew the best way for the Roman church to help him spread the gospel was for them to know the gospel and what he clearly preached. Paul's already preached uh, all over the, the south and west of Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, Jerusalem, Judea. And now he wants to go to the far ends. He wants to go far west and he wants to preach the gospel where the gospel hasn't reached. Again, this is around 57 AD, so he's completed his three missionary journeys and Paul's been church planning for 25 years. And he's thinking in these three months of where he's going next. I know I'm going to Jerusalem. Where am I going after Jerusalem? And what he wants to do is he wants to launch out beyond where, where he's been before. And, and Rome is a natural place to start. He's wanted to go there. He hasn't been able to go there. So he's going to stop there on the way to Spain. So he writes this letter to, to prepare. Paul wants to use Rome as a base of, of support. And so explaining the gospel well and bringing unity through the gospel is, is important. It's one of the reasons I think Paul is so theological in this book. It's kind of like a missions presentation in theology. Now, I understand when, when you 
may have heard a lot of missions presentations. It's, it's about the person, about the location, about this is what we've done in the past, and we've won this many people to the Lord, and we've had these short-term mission trips. You know what Paul launches with? If, if Paul was doing a missionary presentation to this church this morning, you know what he would do? He would give you the book of Romans. He would say, this is the gospel, this is what I'm going to preach, this is why I have to go to Spain. That's, that's Paul's gospel missions presentation. Because missions requires agreement in the truth. A unified church is an evangelistic church, and a, a church that engages in missions understands the gospel fully. I heard a long time ago, I think the first person I heard say it was Paul Washer, he said in missions, we don't just send people, we send truth through people. People are the vessels for truth, and Paul wanted to make sure they understood the truth. And the gospel is not only what we carry, but it's the fire that lights us to, to go to begin with. So Paul thoroughly explains the gospel in order for, for the Roman church to be excited about what's, what's going to happen and see it spread beyond. So, so first of all, he wants to bring the gospel to Spain. He does that through describing the gospel that he preaches. That's why he's writing the letter. The second, though, he wrote to bring unity through explaining the gospel in dealing with its objections. The gospel doesn't just motivate people to, to spread it, but the gospel also brings unity. And it deals with objections. So Paul doesn't want disunity to come from objections. Like, who's guilty before God? Where does the Jewish law fit in? There's both Jews and Gentiles in, in this church. How do Gentiles re relate to the law? Is Paul antinomian? Is he just rejecting the law? Does Paul dispute Moses? Some people were saying that. Why would we want to send a missionary that denies the Old Testament? Well, we wouldn't. So Paul deals with that issue. Has God forsaken Israel? Has Paul forsaken them? He calls himself a gospel to the Gentiles. Does Paul reject his Jewishness? Paul writes and answers all those questions in this letter. This church doesn't know Paul. And what they've heard about him is mixed due to detractors. You may recall whenever we preach through the book of Philippians, Paul ends up in Rome. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. He ends up in Rome, but not the way he anticipated. Paul ends up in Rome as a prisoner. And in the first chapter of Philippians, he says, I'm here by, by God's providence. And because of my chains, he says, the gospel is actually spreading farther in Rome than I ever anticipated. It, it's even penetrated the Praetorian Guard and Caesar's household. You remember that? So I am in chains, and, and this is the power of the gospel. It goes places where it, it wouldn't have gone at, at all if, if I hadn't have been in prison. Then Paul also talks about some detractors that are there in Rome. When he shows up in Rome, you remember, there's fanfare. And then when he's in prison, there are people that are preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. The detractors. Paul says, I don't care. They can say whatever they want to about me as long as they preach Christ straight. And so these detractors, Paul is, is writing about some of the things that, that he's heard that that they've said four to five years before he ever gets there. And so he mentions some of these opponents in, like, Romans 3.8. Turn over to Romans 3.8, if, if you would. Here's one of the 
the places where Paul mentions things are being said about him, and he, he sets it straight. He, he, he answers the objection, Romans 3.8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. I mean, somebody said that about Paul, and the Roman church has heard it, or he wouldn't have quoted it here, and he's saying that's slander. He's correcting that. So as he's explaining the gospel, he's correcting the objections that are given and things that are untrue about him. And Paul deals with issues in this letter that are specific to Rome. I mean, uh, Paul would have, would have known those issues from Priscilla and Aquila, but these are general problems that Paul has dealt with in all of the other churches where there's Jews and Gentiles. So we don't want to overestimate the issues in the Roman church, but, but Paul never writes a letter in general. He always addresses a specific church and deals with specific issues that, that are there. Because Rome didn't have an apostolic foundation, Paul wanted to thoroughly explain the gospel and deal with his criticisms. I mean, you might think of it like inoculating the church by explaining exactly what he preached dealing with common arguments that, that he's heard before he arrives, because when he arrives, he's going to say, help me take the gospel to Spain. And this church was probably susceptible to some of those arguments because of its makeup. Rome, you remember, was Jewish when it started. Pentecost, Jews came back, probably launched in the synagogues. One commentator said there's, there, there's evidence of 10 to 13 synagogues in, in Rome during this time. So it probably starts Jewish, and then something takes place that's very significant that shifts the, the focus of the church from, a, from primarily Jewish and a few God-fearing Gentiles to primarily Gentiles and no Jews, or practically no Jews. Something interesting takes place that changes the, church make, the church's makeup. It's recorded in history... But we don't need history. It's actually recorded in the book of Acts. Here's the historical uh, connection. There's a writing from a historian, Suetonius, that talks about the emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 A.D. Jesus, uh, 30 to 33 A.D. Paul writing between 55 to 57 A.D. So in, in, in Claudius comes in at 41 and he reigns almost through the, the ministry of Paul. And the historian Suetonius writes about how Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome over arguments, continued arguments, about a man named Crestus, which most believe is a misprint for Christus. And it makes perfect sense because anywhere the gospel goes, in the synagogues and Jesus is placed there, they're arguing over, is he the Christ, is he not? And the argument instigated riots and uprisings amongst the Jews and, and just like everywhere else. But as I said, frankly, we don't need secular historians. The book of Acts tells us this very explicitly. It records the expulsion of the Jews from Rome, Acts 18. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently, who, who recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius 
had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so Luke records and history explains why they were expelled. The edict was issued in 49 A.D. Claudius dies in 54 A.D. And when an emperor dies, his edicts uh, uh, perish with him. It's kind of like an executive order of a president. When that president's gone, the next guy comes along and he, and he changes it. And so when the decree ends, then the, the Jews come back to Rome. And while they're gone, the church is primarily Gentiles. And the church being primarily Gentiles doesn't deal with circumcision or Sabbaths or new moons or, or anything like that. And one of the ways that we know this, that they came back, is Romans 16 where Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila. Look at Romans 16.3. Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So Paul, when he's writing Romans, Priscilla and Aquila are in, are in the city. And so they were able to move back after the edict is, is over, and they returned educated by the Apostle Paul. It's just one of the many examples in the Bible how God takes something evil and works it for good. And while they were educated by the Apostle Paul, they tell Paul of some of the issues that are going on within the church. If you can imagine whenever the Jews returned and came back, there would have been some conflict. The church had been running with Gentiles for five to seven years. It's one of the reasons that Paul deals with both Jewish and Gentile issues. He deals with Jewish issues such as keeping the Sabbath and the dietary laws and the Gentile objections to, to that. It's the reason Paul writes chapter 9 through 11, where's the place of Israel. It's one of the reasons that he writes chapter 14 through 15, dealing with the weak and the strong. Chapters 9 through 11 rebuke arrogance uh, of Gentiles over the fact that, that they are now the ones that are primarily coming into the kingdom. And it seems like Israel is rejected. And Paul says, don't get arrogant. You're a wild olive branch grafted in to the root. And he answers Jewish objections as, as well about why the majority of God's chosen people were, were rejecting the, the kingdom. Chapter 13 and 14, or 14 and 15, he deals with these interpersonal disputes that rose over the Sabbath and ceremonial law. And Paul says, don't look down on one another. You're both the Lord's servants. And so with some Jews returning, no doubt, there were strong ones that they thought they, thought they were the obedient ones. And so Paul deals with it. So how does he do all of that? I mean, how does he lay out an argument? I mean, we think about that list of all the questions answered, all of those, all of those theologies, all of the questions, all those doctrines. How does Paul fit all of that into 16 chapters? When two of those chapters are details about where he wants to go and people to greet. So really, 14 chapters. Paul puts all of that together. So that's the third preparatory question to answer. How is it structured? And it's front-loaded. There's a theme and a key verse in the very first chapter. And then from there, Paul just strings that all the way through every argument that, that, that he makes. Colin Cruz said that over the years, there have been a number of people who saw the heart of Romans differently. 
the reformers, obviously, like Luther, saw the center of the, of the, the argument of the letter being chapters 1 through 5, focused on justification by faith. In the 1900s, that shifted to chapter 5 through 8. People said, ah, oh, Romans is, is about uh, our union with Christ and the work of the Spirit. Even more recently, Romans chapter 9 through 11, uh, people were saying that's the theme, showing how Gentiles can be incorporated in the people of God. That's why Paul's writing it. Even others would say that Paul's primary purpose is unity. So chapter 14 and 15, that's the heart of the letter. He says all of that to get to chapter 14 and, and 15. But frankly, I think it's, it's a lot simpler than that because chapter 1 gives us our starting point. And Paul's driving focus is on God in Christ. How God acted in Christ to bring about His righteousness, which is the gospel that he preaches. Again, the... Alva J. McLean pointed out that the gospel is spoken about in Romans in three ways. It's one of the ways we know that this is all about the gospel. Look, if you would, at Romans 1.1. Paul says he is separated unto the gospel of God. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 16, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter 2, 16, look at chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of, of men through, through Christ Jesus. It's the gospel of God because it's been His plan since the beginning and it comes from Him. It's the gospel of Christ because without Him you have no gospel. It's His worth and work that brings the good news. And it's Paul's gospel, the gospel of Paul, because he gave his life preaching it. This is what he preached everywhere he went. It's the great apostle's message. And he only had one. This was it. Paul was not a great orator or a, an innovative leader or a personal force, or had great personality. I mean, Paul was tenacious. There's no doubt about that. But Paul says that everything that he is in himself, even his background, his education, he counted as dung, that he might be able to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ's gospel. Paul's entire message, your entire message, is the, the gospel of God's righteousness that comes to us through His, his Son, and that's the, that's the theme. Of Romans, the gospel of God's righteousness from, from cover to cover. And the theme verse uh, for the book actually declares it in, in two verses. Look, look, if you would, at Romans 1, 16 and 17. You know this probably by heart. But look at what it says. This is the theme verse of, of the book, two of them. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's Paul's declaration. He makes it in the preamble of the letter. He tells us what he's going to unfold in this great epistle and why. He quotes Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. 
Six words in English, six words in Greek, three words in Hebrew. But it explains this book in the gospel, these two verses. The righteousness of God is revealed in this text. It's the the good news that came through Christ. And Paul says he's not ashamed of that message. It's the power of God unto salvation because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And and then he explains what it is. It's the the just or the righteous shall live by, by faith, meaning... The righteous shall be made right with God by faith. The righteous or the, or the just. Everything that we're not. I mean, he'll go on to say there's none righteous. No, no, not one. But the gospel reveals how a man can have this righteousness. And he says that comes from God. I mean, if you hope to be declared righteous, and that righteousness is what you, you need to get into heaven and escape hell, Paul says you'll find it in the gospel. It's revealed in the gospel. The word righteousness is used 91 times in the New Testament. 35 of them are in the book of Romans. And he says that the righteous shall live. It's life that comes with this righteousness, through this righteousness. I mean, mankind doesn't just need another set of external laws or outward conformity of behaviors. I mean, we've got enough of that. Nobody can even keep those anyway. What we need is life, spiritual life. So Paul says the the righteousness that man needs is a righteousness that brings him life. Whereas Paul will later say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul says the righteous shall live, and they'll live by faith. And that end statement is how we receive both righteousness and and life. Uh, Paul says the gospel is appropriated, it's received, its benefits are received by faith from beginning to end. If we need to be made right with God, and that involves spiritual life, how does that take place? How do we get that? Paul answers that right here, right up front. The way to righteousness and life is by faith. He even goes on to say it's, it's from faith to faith, from beginning to end, from start to finish. It's by faith alone. It always has been. It's the same faith that Abraham exercised, which is why he came before Moses. He'll argue that. In fact, this epistle begins and ends with this faith. It's like bookends. Romans 1.5. Look at Romans 1.5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And look at Romans 16. Here's how it ends. But now, as manifested by the Scriptures of the the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. The Greek is exactly the same in both passages. So everything between chapter 1 and chapter 16 all comes by faith. And it's all about uh, righteousness and life that comes through Jesus Christ and, and Him alone. And for the rest of the letter, Paul just, Paul just explains that. The letter's broken down in, in nine parts. This is the part where you might not want to write it down because it's a lot. Paul introduces the letter in chapter 1 by introducing himself and giving thanks for them, and he states his theme. That's what we just went over. 
Then Paul talks about the universal need for the gospel. This is the, the sin chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Since universal need is diagnosed, the good news of salvation starts with the bad news of our condemnation. Paul says irreligious people need to be saved because they suppress the truth. Religious people need to be saved because they're, they're self-righteous. All people need to be saved because they're universally guilty, totally depraved, Romans 3. One writer said Paul shows in this section that not just uh, just God is saying the ones who are guilty is not just the suppressing pagans running around worshiping little idols, but the self-righteous moralists that use religion. True suppressing sinners, religious sinners, all sinners. And so after that, Paul then shows the exclusive solution for sinners in the gospel of God's righteousness. It's justification by, by, by faith alone. Chapter 3 21 through 425. And then he goes into that, that, that once that comes to you, a believer has assurance because of the gospel of God's righteousness. And so he talks about how there's a change and how we have peace with God in chapter 5. And there's a change in how we relate to Adam and Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We're in, we're in Christ in chapter 5. And there's a change in how we relate to sin, the bondage of sin in chapter 6. And a change in how we relate to the Mosaic Law in chapter 7. How are somebody who's dead to the law is not bound by the, by the law. There's a change in, in our relationship to the Spirit of God in chapter 8. He brings our assurance, a great chapter. And then Paul gives a defense of the gospel, of God's righteousness related to Israel. That's chapters 9 through 11. He defends the gospel, laying out God's sovereign election. And he says that defends the gospel. He says Christ's central focus of salvation defends it in, in chapter 10. Israel's responsibility defends it in chapter 10. And God's future promise to Israel also defends the gospel in chapter 11. Then after all of that doctrine and theology, we come to that, that verse that you know well in chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all of these mercies... Now he starts talking about how to live. And so there's the transforming power of the gospel of God's righteousness in life. In chapter 12, he says it transforms human relationships. He talks about loving one another and how you relate to each other. In chapter 13, it transforms your relationship to the government. And in chapters 14 and 15, it transforms your relationship between weaker and stronger brothers, between Jews and Gentiles and black and white and... Chinese and Brazilian and wherever else you come from. The unity is in the gospel. And then Paul gives a, an example of preaching the gospel of God's righteousness. Understanding it and embracing it and seeing it defended causes you to want to spread it. So he says, I'm taking it and I want you to go along with me. And then he ends with a doxology for the gospel of God's righteousness an amazing, amazing book. So with all of that, so what? What does God intend for you to get from, from this book? Because if Romans is that important, then God must have a profound purpose for it, and, and indeed He does. You probably picked up some of them as we went through, but, but let me tell you specifically why you should study Romans and, and what you'll learn from it. First, and and foremost, 
the book of Romans shows us how a person can be made right with, with God. If you go along on this journey, God will answer the age-old question of how you can have your conscience cleansed from guilt. How you can have peace, even if you're tormented like Luther. How you can be assured of where you'll go whenever you die. There's no better book than the book of Romans to answer those things. It'll also show us why a person needs to be made right with God. And in a pluralistic society, which, which says there's all different, your truth and my truth, I'm going to speak my truth, and there's many ways to God, it doesn't even matter where there's a God. You just live however you want to live. The book of Romans identifies specific sins, but, but that's not its focus. Its focus is on why you sin. It reveals where sin comes from. So it'll explain why you or anybody else that needs to be made right with God. If you're dealing with yourself, a specific sin, or somebody else who denies sin, no better place to take them than the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3. The book of Romans explains the, the basis for our assurance. It, it, it gives us hope. It tells us that we no longer are slaves to sin, but servants of Christ, and that, that we have hope in the Spirit and hope in life to come, and, and that you can never, ever be separated from any of that because of Jesus. What an encouraging book. And it shows us God's plan for the, for the Jewish people and answers the questions of, of why the church is dominated by Gentiles and whether God has forsaken his, his people. The book of Romans shows us how we're now to live it shows us all this matters in practical daily life where living sacrifices offered to God. And the book of Romans shows us that unity comes through the gospel in chapter 14 and, and 15. Not our preferences or embracing our ethnicity or denying it. It comes through Jesus Christ alone. And finally, the book of Romans shows us this gospel motivates us, demands that we take it to to other places where it hasn't been proclaimed. And the introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness in chapter 1 starts with the, the good news about righteousness and life that comes through faith alone. And that good news starts with the bad news about, about our condition. What a great day to come to Jesus Christ. Any day is a great day to come to Jesus Christ. But bowing the knee to Christ today and then walking verse by verse through Paul's opus, the being discipled in the gospel by the Apostle Paul himself, what a tremendous blessing and, and privilege so if you're outside of Christ this morning, you don't know Him, you don't have peace with God, come. What a great day to stop wasting your life, to lay aside whatever weight and sin which easily besets you and say, today, I'm going to lay that aside in Christ, covered, forgiven, and I'm going to walk verse by verse through Romans, and I'm going to change in the direction that, that I've been walking. What a great day to do that. And all of this awaits us in this tremendous book. Let's pray.
Father, I can hardly wait. And I say that in, in, from a human standpoint, because I know your word says that I may not have to wait. Everyone else in here may not have to wait. We're not promised another day. There are people listening to my voice right now that may not, may not end this day, this side of eternity. And Lord, that would be fine from my standpoint, for, for me. I'll get greater insight in the book of Romans in, in heaven. I'll see the one that it's written about. For anyone outside of Christ or confused or in sin, I wouldn't want that to happen. So I pray that today they would bow to you and repent and believe and trust in Christ alone. And I pray, Father, as a church, that you'll help us to, to learn, correct the error that might be in our hearts and in our, in our minds. Uh, we do suppress the truth naturally. Teach us, equip us, bring many people to Christ through this letter, even in our midst. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.